0: God dag og velkommen til langsomme samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med en kvinde, som har været en inspiration for mig i over halvdelen af mit liv, ikke uforbrudt, men i livsdefinerende nedslag. Det er videnskabsteoretikeren, filosofen, forskeren, forfatteren, feministen og aktivisten Donna Haraway. Hun er født i 1944 og har været en del af klimakampen, identitetskampen og de store brud i amerikansk åndsliv og på den amerikanske venstrefløj i op imod et halvt århundrede. Hun var i mange år ansat som professor ved Universitetet i Santa Cruz i Kalifornien. Nu er hun emerita derfra. Donna Haraway skrev en bog i 1985, der ramte min ungdom på samme måde som William Gibsons roman Neuromancer og filmen Blade Runner, et totalt opbrud med de kategorier, man har vokset op med, og de forståelser af verden, som man er blevet uddannet og dannet til. Donna Haraway svækker nogle meget stærke grænser i den bog for at åbne feltet og få os til at tænke vores egen virkelighed forfra. Hun siger, forskellen mellem natur og menneske er ikke absolut. Det er en glidende overgang. Det kendte vi jo godt, der havde Hibian også sagt. Men så sagde hun også, forskellen mellem mennesker og teknologi er ikke absolut. Det er en glidende overgang. Og det betød ligesom, at de tre store adskilte fænomener, natur, menneske og teknologi, som vi jo vant til at positionere os i forhold til at tænke verden igennem, at de blev ophævet, og man skulle faktisk lære at forestille sig det hele forfra, og forstå, at det ikke er noget med, at maskinen tager magten fra menneskene. din er slags forlængelse af menneskene. Det er heller ikke sådan, at menneskene fortaber sig i naturen. Vi er allerede i naturen. Vi befinder os i overgangen, som giver os frihedsgrader, men som også giver os forskellige ansvarsgrader. Donna Haraway var i A Cyborg Manifesto også optaget af, at vi skulle gøres fri af de kategorier, som vi havde tænkt det venstreorienterede projekt igennem. Det er kategorier som køn, race, klasse, seksuel orientering, som hun sagde, de var allerede splindrede, og det galt om at gennemføre splindringen af dem fuldstændigt. Hun sagde også, at der i den venstreorienterede teori og aktivisme har været en drøm om ét subjekt, en aktør i historien, som kunne klare hele revolutionen. Og det kunne være en aktør, der talte for det, som hun kaldte moralsk overlegenhed. En, der var bedre end alle andre. En slags venstrefløjens Jesus. En Tiki Vardagsgikkelse, som man kunne investere alle sine forhåbninger i. Eller en, der havde lidt meget mere end alle de andre. Det kunne være arbejderklassen, proletariatet, de udstødte, kvinderne, andre minoriteter. Det gik ikke længere, sagde Donald Harry. Vi måtte gøres fri af den tanke, og det oplevedes gang I slutningen af 80'erne og i starten af 90'erne, så er som om ungdomsoprøret endelig var slut jordbjerne endelig havde tabt, og nu skulle vi til at tænke hele verden forfra. Det var jo ikke sådan, det gik. Og så alligevel. Fordi Donna Haraway er blevet en slags arv på venstrefløjen. Hun er blevet en slags referenceramme, og en, man tænker med og imod, og har gjort det i flere generationer og i meget lang tid. Hun er udgivet af andre bøger, blandt andet situeret Viden, som handler om videnskabsspørgsmålet i feminismen og det partielle perspektivs forrang, og hun udgav i 2016 en bog, der på engelsk hed Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the Cholo Og den bog, Staying with the Trouble, den er udkommet på dansk i 2021, og hedder At Blive i Besværet. Det er en fantastisk bog, som gør op med tanken om, at man ligesom skal rydde verden for at kunne starte forfra. Gør op med tanken om, at man skal tænke nye store politiske projekter, og man skal forestille sig nye politiske institutioner og helt nye idéer, at blive i besværet, staying with the trouble, er en livsindstilling, som handler om, at man skal engagere sig i de relationer og de situationer, man er i. Man skal erkende dem og gå dybt og radikalt ind i dem og forfølge dem. Det lyder meget abstrakt, og det er det også, fordi hun vil tage et sted hen, end vi plejer at være intellektuelt. Men det er også meget konkret, for det handler om vores allernærmeste hverdag, staying with the trouble, at blive i de forbindelser, der er i virkeligheden, og forstå dem. Der er flere kontroversielle pointer i at blive i besværet. En af dem er, at vi skal make kin, not babies. Og med det mener hun. Vi skal skabe slægtskab med tingene omkring os. Vi skal ikke blive ved med at få en hel masse børn, siger Donna Haraway. At vi i stedet for lærer at forbinde os med andre ting. Og det er klart, det har været en voldsom udfordring for Venstreføren, som har insisteret på, at alle selv må bestemme, om de vil have børn eller om de ikke vil have børn. Et andet angrebspunkt i bogen, det er forestillingen om det antroposæne, nemlig at mennesket nu har påvirket omgivelserne i vores liv så meget, at det er en slags menneskeligt verdensrum, vi befinder os i. Det er en fejlslutning, siger Donna Haraway, og forestille sig det på den måde. Jeg vil ikke afsløre hvorfor, men blot sige, at det er nogle af de ting, vi kommer omkring i den her samtale. Det var en stor fornøjelse for mig at tale med hende, en som man har læst og været inspireret af i så mange år. Jeg håber, det bliver en stor fornøjelse for jer at lytte med. Good evening and welcome to our viewers who are with us here in Denmark and in Scandinavia. Uh, I'm Rune Luggeberg from Information and especially, and I think it's actually good morning to you, Donna Haraway, (laughs) who's with us from Santa Cruz, California. (laughs) Thank you so much for for taking your time and talking to us. I want to ask you first, because the occasion uh, for talking is the publication of Staying with the Trouble. In the beginning of chapter four of staying with the trouble, you go through the slogans of your writing from Cyborg for Earthless Survival, run fast, bite hard, and they stay with the trouble. And these slogans, they kind of reflect different situations and context of your work. They're responding to different situations. They're kind of a trajectory for me of what you've been working on. How do you see this development
1: yourself? I think, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure. And uh, so look, Cyborgs for Earthly Survival was a slogan suggested to me by Elizabeth Byrd, then a graduate student, now a a colleague uh, who has done really amazing work on uh, social justice issues, on feminism and indigenous rights and health questions, so on, a person who has remained in the struggle, who has stayed with the trouble. She was the one who gave me Cyborgs for Earthly Survival. Uh, And I think that's indicative of um, the way I work and think and live, which is in a a community of folks who are passionate together in different ways, each with our gaps and our strengths, um, who are trying to do something together to make the world slightly less deadly. um, So that cyborgs are clearly inherited from a strongly militarized um, both reality and science fictional consciousness and electronic battlefield in Southeast Asia in the era of the Vietnam War. Cyborgs come from the kind of um, research of remote control of uh, implanted brains in primates. Woman on the Edge of Time, that amazing novel by Marge Percy um, develops uh, the, the notion of the cyborg as an experimental subject for uh, brain, for behavior control, something that clearly has not gone away. Um, Cyborgs have been part of of the world, um, our world, a global world uh, for at least the last, oh, I don't know, let's say 70, 80 years, let's say 70 years. And cyborgs for earthly survival appropriated and made to work for the earth um, is clearly a necessity. Uh, I think of Kim Stanley Robinson and his book Ministry for the Future uh, and his deep interest in Earth-friendly technology and their deployment as part of the struggle for inhabiting and repairing a damaged planet. I think of that as cyborgs for earthly survival. It's ongoing. Then run fast, bite hard. That (laughs) comes from my era of dog training. It's a slogan from Schutzen Dog Training. Uh, serious guard dog training: run fast, bite hard. You can see it on some bumper stickers. Clearly, it's bad advice for the ordinary person walking their dog. Uh, on the other hand, there it's a kind of reminder of fierceness. That this is that we are truly in a struggle for who lives and who dies. And run fast, bite hard is is very much part of the struggle. Um, then, staying with the trouble just seems obvious. Clearly, uh, you show up, you stay with the trouble. We aren't in charge of the future. We can't fix things in some sort of uh, futurist oriented way. Uh, fixing is sort of the, is really not the right way of thinking, but working with each other to uh, repair damage, to propose still possible past, presents, and futures, to work toward worlds that deserve to be inhabited, Uh, This is not about a kind of working for the big fix. It's about staying with the trouble in order to make a real difference with each other. And that makes sense to me in a way futurism does not. Uh, Then I think a little later we'll get to the make kin, not babies slogan, which has gotten me in way more trouble, (laughs) about, about which I... By the way, I don't think it's an anti-baby slogan, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Yeah, I love
0: I love the phrase staying with the trouble because it kind of inspires you to be in the situation that you're in. And it's also, and I think that was part of your work from the very beginning, saying, Well, we can't just erase the situation that we're in and invent a new world to, to, to be in. And it inspires you to deal with it. And I think uh, an, an expression that you use throughout your work is this living and dying on a damaged planet and and, and learning to inhabit a, a damaged planet. And I think it inspires us
1: to do that, staying with the, the trouble. How did you come up with the phrase? I have no idea. I think it just popped into my mind. Uh, on the other hand, it's also a kind of an ordinary idiom in English. Just stay with the trouble. Just, uh, it, it's not, I don't know. Um, it, I feel when I write like in some sense I'm channeling um, and stuff moves through me and I grab some of it, most of it escapes. Uh, <laughs> so and I and I think in uh, well, I, I, writing is important to me, as is speaking and hearing. Language is really important um, to my practice, to the way I think. And um, I think that um, Phrases, sentences, whole, uh, whole complex arrays of of fiction and analytical work. Um, those things are are part of my material existence. So staying with the trouble is like that. And then of course, there's this is the English version that Duke <laughs> put out with this absolutely amazing image by uh, uh, that comes from a, from collage print work by Geraldine Javier when she was working in Singapore, she's a, a Filipina print artist. And the, the, li- the living and dying, the multi-species quality of it, it's funny, it's beautiful, it's provocative. Um, it's illustrates string figures. There's, there's fiber art, there's print art, there's leaves turned into uh, the butterfly. There's the echoing of shape. I work with a kind of a relay between visual and verbal. Um, and so, I don't know the origin of the phrase, but I know the, the way that it made things come together for me. You know, in the, in the climate movement, the concept of the Anthropocene
0: has become central, and it's become kind of a, a phrase for the world that we're in at the moment. It's all, it's a, it's, for some, it's a, it's a definition of a period, and for others, it's a definition of a specific uh, situation. And you have, there's a very thorough critique of the concept in the book. I don't think you want to to remove the, the concept altogether. It's kind of staying with the trouble, is staying with the concept of the Anthropocene. But but I think it would be helpful if you could tell what are your reservations
1: about the concept. Right, well, um, first I want to affirm that I have, I have neither the power nor the desire <laughs> to eliminate the term. And inspired by Vincent Desprey and by the Gecko Feminist Collective in Belgium and Isabel Stengers and Benedicta Zutini and Karen Harasser, all of these people, um, I think of, I work by addition, not subtraction. Uh, And Anthropocene does some really important work. For one thing, it really does foreground um, the the really important, and now on a popular level, as well as technical, that human beings really are doing this, Uh, that this really, that we are looking at a kind of accelerating extinction crisis, um, uh, the possibility of flipped ecosystems that can no longer sustain all kinds of life, climate refugees, really intense, especially among the poor and people of color, um, et cetera, et cetera, that the kind of damage we're looking at really is caused um, in recent time Depends on how you date it. You can. There are lots of different ways to date Anthropocene. Uh, depends on what you want to foreground: nuclear culture, fossil fuel burning, um, certain kinds of damage of industrial agriculture, plantation system, and slavery in the uh, in the system that invented industrial capitalism. Really, uh, it's really. Uh, it depends on what you want to foreground what you name as the beginning of Anthropocene, all of which is kind of interesting. The critique is obvious. It's not the Anthropos. It's not us as a species who do this. It situated human beings in specific configurations of economies and exchange and material apparatuses and technologies and philosophical commitments. The the Anthropos and the Anthropocene in a really crude way is the uh, industrial and post-industrial and neoliberal capitalist cartels? <laughs> you know, it's the uh, it's and that is what Jason Moore and Andreas Mann called the capitalocene. That really it is more accurate to call our dilemma the capitalocene. Um, and I suggested also particularly taking account of the absolutely fundamental uh, role that chattel slavery, the transformation of tens of millions of people um, into uh, hereditary slaves in the system of sugar and then cotton and tobacco and so on in the Americas, Uh, Brazil, the Caribbean, uh, the United States, the triangle trade, the tremendous importance of those plantations, deeply uh, considered by people like Sylvia Winter and and John L. Davis and, and Catherine McKittrick and other plantations in Southeast Asia, in Hawaii, Now, plantations are ongoing. The kind of violent monocropping and dislocation of plants, animals, people, microbes for the extraction of value um, is in many ways the invention. Uh, I think the the Anthropocene could well be called the Plantationocene in that sense, Um, which emphasizes the suffering of both people and other animals and plants, not to hierarchicalize uh, but to talk about the way that we are in, entangled as beings of the earth in these violent, ongoing violent systems. So uh, that's already a multiplication into three, and then I suggested another one, which is the time of the earthly ones, the ongoing time of the of the of the beings of the critters of the earth, the phonic ones, the ones of the earth, the Thulu scene. It kind of echoes Lovecraft's monster Thulu, but that was a bad mistake. I probably should have called it the Thano scene, but I didn't. (laughs) And the Thulu scene is, is configuring not the ancient past, though it includes that, but the ongoing vitality and liveliness and living and dying and suffering and proposing and achieving of the beings of the earth. We are not gone. In other words, any one of these stories taken one at a time, Anthropocene, Capitolocene, Plantationocene, thuleocene any one of them alone is way too big a story and it it shuts up the other stories. So because I tend to work by addition, the very fact of of addition ends up making a point, which is that these categories are just that, they are categories that do a certain kind of work and they exclude a great deal, but they are taken as the whole way too easily. Uh, these categories suck all the air out of the room if we let them become singularities, if you will. But they do important work. Anthropocene does important work, but it does way too much work, <laughs> uh, it, et cetera. So I think the, the Thulucene does not yet do too much work because it's hardly been adopted by the masses. Uh, I have fantasies you know, that, that will be adopted by the mass. Anyway, you see what I mean. This working by addition is also a way of demonstrating both the usefulness and the uh, extreme, uh, not just the, the way categories also tell lies, the way categories are themselves, if necessary, are, are inevitably also doing a kind of violence. Mm-hmm. And Anthropocene does a lot of violence. By foregrounding the idea uh, that it's species humanity, that it's us as a as a biosocial entity that have done this. And that is simply not true uh, in a really radical way. It is not the case. Uh, and the it is not the case now, and it never has been the case. I'm in the process of reading uh, the Dawn of Everything by david graver and the, and the other David, his name, I'm blanking on, the archaeologist, really neat guy. Yeah, you know, this kind of redoing of our imagination of 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 past, reimagination of past, present, futures, because they're actually closer to the evidence. These reimaginations are actually more evidence rich, and yet we let these highly uh, generalizing, abstract, really prick stories—really these stories that do a kind of God trick, really phallic stories—if you let them occupy the space. Anthropocene does that way too easily. Uh, It's as if it were man. And it just isn't, it's historically wrong. Uh, And it it disempowers us to think that way. And the other hand, it's really important to realize that situated human beings really are doing this. Uh, And we are all enlisted in it, um, both as, uh, as victims and enablers. And I think there's several layers of your criticism of the concept in the book. And
0: there's another point that I really appreciate. I was speaking to a a young journalist at the newspaper who liked your work and I said, what do you like so much about Donna Haraway's work? He said, well, when I read it, I realized it's not all about us. It's not just the humans alone at the center in in the world. It's not like we did it and we must fix it. It's like connecting us to everything that's not us and finding meaning. Meaning in that. And I think sometimes when we speak about climate change, it's been so important to make uh, critics and skeptics acknowledge that it was man-made. This was made by humans. This is it, a product yeah. this is a product of our way of living, working, producing and transporting in, in the way that we produce and transport and consume in this era and and so when we say we did it we also tend to say well we are the agents of history we are the center of of the universe and that is a problem i think within the climate movement that we
1: say it was man made and climate is just all all around us isn't that a problem with the concept of the anthropocene as well yeah that's i think what i, I think you and i are agreeing and i don't think actually i think they did it uh, <laughs> probably more accurate because all of the people that i know in that we are part of the problem, you know, burning too much fossil fuel, driving our cars, buying too much, oppressed, you know, etc. There, there's a way in which it is us, but but I really think it's more. If you're going to choose just one pronoun, they is more accurate. Um, but more to the point, you know, situated knowledge is, has been another phrase that's really important to me. Situated real people did it and are doing it. Um and there are there at various kinds of scales and with various kinds of times, and the the damage that is that is really accelerating it has deep earth effects. surely it it um, disrupts the possibility of of human of human lives unequally, desperately, unequally. Human lives are damaged desperately, unequally often through the profound damage to the more than human. And the more than human uh, has, has integrity and, uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to use the word right to right to recognition, right to care. I don't exactly want to use the term rights here. But um, the, the more than human world demands its own, has its own, is its own uh, thing, irrespective of us. We are part of that. In a way, we are part of the more than human world. We are, we are earthly beings. And the, the um, passion and need and the skill that it requires to partially repair a damaged planet and propose and enact possible futures is also for not us. <laughs> it's both with not us and for not us, but we're not separated off in some kind of, you know across the gap. We are in and of the earth. Uh, as as people, and we have been in and of the earth as people, genus Homo, you know, from the get go, from the deep past, from as long ago as paleontologists and archaeologists recognize entities that are pretty much like us. Um, you know, from the get go, we have been diverse, uh, inventive, um, you know, generative, so on and so on, and, and entangled with part of a profoundly multi-species world of microbes, plants, animals, rocks, airs, places, um, that we are in and of the earth, not man, and have always been in and of the earth, not man, and not in some kind of teleological developmental way that goes from simple to complex. That's simply wrong as earth history and as history of our species. So that we are we are part of a profoundly complex and 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 multiply folded ongoing story making, and we have the we, you and me and just about it you know anybody we know and a bunch of people we don't know, <laughs> we have the job of shutting up uh, the story that threatens to suck us dead, uh, and suck the more than human dead, and make much louder the stories and the and the practices of those who are committed to care, to repair, to flourishing, to joy, you know, to work and play uh, in ways that are not teleological. We're not aiming for the big fix. We're certainly not aiming for you know Elon, Elon Musk going to space and coming back in some kind of tragic parabola and paying for the privilege. <laughs> we are not about the God trick again. Uh, but about some kind of living and dying together better. Uh, so I'm not a pro-life person. I never talk talk about living by itself. I'm insistent on the issue on the on the on recognizing uh, limitation and mortality, finitude and mortality. And the Anthropocene story has a tendency to forget that. We are the ultimate destroyers. We are, you know, the wind of Oppenheimer. We are uh, the wind of destruction. We are the old ult- nonsense, frankly. It's a kind of profound arrogance inside that story if it sucks all the air out of the room. Um, and I think, it, you know, I, I'm among many committed to working against it. Like in Denmark, you had Anna Singh as a guest for many years in the Anthropocene project at Aarhus. It's Anna that proposes the term uh, living on a damaged planet. Uh, it's Anna who is my close friend and colleague who I feel with in um, building practices of care. Maria Puig de la Casa, Anna Tseng, Heather Swanson, the people at Aarhus. You see what I mean? It, yes. It's a kind of a profound, the we is this entangled group of of people who care and who care with the human and the non-human. I think in
0: that way of thinking and practicing and engaging there's also something very hopeful about how we respond to climate change you know it's it kind of forces us to rediscover other connections and it kind of forces us to rethink our place in the universe our obligations and and maybe also our language of rights. What are we entitled to? What are our human rights of expressing? How how do we take care of each other? Is that through demanding our our rights? And I think there's something very encouraging in that. But there's also a a slogan in your book that you mentioned before that got you into a lot of trouble. It is a courageous book as well, because you have the slogan, making kin, not babies. And we're, of course, used to thinking that if you're on the left and I think you understand yourself as someone being on some, some kind of, of left, a place with a lot of holes (laughs) in it, you know, you know, it's not everything on the left that you identify with, but being someone of the left, we're used to saying that reproduction is a, is a right and it's something that we fight for. And for that reason, this population problem has been very delicate on the left that we're too many people uh, on the planet. Definitely. And the way we, Reproduce ourselves will damage the planet, especially the way we live now and the way the most privileged people are living. But you have this slogan, "Making kidnapped
1: Babies," to kind of address that problem. How, how do you explain that? Well, I understand that slogan to be a prov- a provocation, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I think it's 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 problematic. You know, make kin not, you know, make kin and make babies carefully and with each other in ways that, you know, I mean, slogans are short. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, I think it's important several things. The, the story making at the end of Staying with the Trouble, the Camille stories that we might get to a little later, gradually steps down human population over about 400 years uh, as the population was built up by fundamental changes over a, a significant period of time. So it's not a, and furthermore, uh, the make kin, not babies work, especially in the book that we, that I put out with colleagues, I'm looking for a copy of it. Here we are. Make kin, not population. Yes. With several close colleagues. Um, We are collectively, and I am personally, profoundly committed to the notion that women, Uh, People who get pregnant, that is to say, women, people who uh, who who make babies with others, of course, with men, with communities, with other women, with other with children, so on. But that in no way can women either be forced to bear a child or forbidden from bearing a child. Reproductive freedom uh, is a fundamental commitment of my make kin, not babies world. Okay. And that's foregrounded from the get go in that book and in the writing I've done about the subject. So reproductive freedom is not an option. Uh, I would also use the term reproductive rights in contextual ways, because I think rights are like Anthropocene. They do important work and we would be fools to throw away that category and that work. We would be true fools. But I'm also really interested in freedom talk. Uh, I'm not willing to give the right wing freedom. <laughs> okay? as a category or liberty and, and the freedom to make or not make babies. And that, that truly nobody uh, can, in the last instance, exercise coercive power over women's reproductive freedom. Okay. No nonsense. And make kin not babies. The urgency of making non-natal kin, of making kin with each other. And kin means... Accountability to each other through the generations. If you make kin, you can't unmake kin next week just because you got gotten an argument. Okay, <laughs> Taking on each other as kin is taking on reciprocal responsibility, cultivating the capacity to respond to each other over time, including ideally over generations. Making kin is a durational project. Okay. It's not just something you wish were the case. You take on friends in projects you really care about and make commitments to each other, economic commitments, commits, commitments of work and time, commitments of of play. If you're making kin, this is this is the cultivating of responsibility durationally. and making kin with each other so as to sustain, Um, and build new kinds of social connection, including for kids, for children, for babies. Babies, in my view, deserve other babies. (laughs) Uh, Children deserve other children, and not just in the context of highly regulated schools and highly regulated sports events. You know, I think kids need other kids in in spaces of freedom without a whole lot of adults hanging on, which means that adults are responsible for making that safe enough. So that kids can can. uh, So my making can is also my commitment to a non natalist, which isn't the same thing as anti natal, but non natalist and pro child world. I don't think we have a pro child world. I think we have a pro natal world strongly influenced by traditional patriarchal values and the right wing and resurgent kinds of Christian pro life. I think we have a a pro-natal world, but an anti-child world that doesn't really take care of its children. Just look at what's happening to children all over the world. Just look at migrant children and questions of resurgent hunger and um, the burdens children are asked to bear, including in these countries that now have fairly low birth rates, um saying oh god we don't have enough children to take care of the of the growing aging population so we got to have more children so they take care of the old give me a break (laughs) the the traditional burden of children uh, to take care of the old is really important and it's a feminist issue because traditionally in many societies the youngest daughter was expected not to marry but to stay home and take care of everybody else until death to remain lonely and involved in a life of obligatory care under familial const- patriarchal familial constrictions. Um, I have a friend from Oaxaca who talks about women of her generation uh, in Oaxaca who did this, who are now old, lonely women because they were expected to take care of the elderly when they were young, uh, and not to have partners and lives of their own. So, make kin not babies um, is is really about figuring out how to make fewer babies. Yes. Uh, over time and recognizing that whole populations have been subject to sustained genocide and still are, and that making more babies in such worlds is decisions those people might take that are are quite legitimate. But the rich, hyper-consuming part of the world to make a lot more babies, give me a break. Wealthy people in the United States or Denmark figuring I, I have a right to my own family and it involves two children, I think that's unbelievably selfish, frankly, although since I'm an old lady with fried eggs, I don't have the right to say that. I I really don't. Uh, I think people make decisions out of deep kinds of considerations. So I'm not judging individual people, but I'm saying the wealthy make an impact in reproductive decisions way out of proportion Uh, and that we don't truly work to sustain our own young and the young of other people. Yes, I do think pretty much all populations on earth are in the long run gonna be making fewer babies. And furthermore, most already are. You know. uh, the real crisis issue around population is like the next 80 years, 150 years, because the way the demography has proceeded is such that a population will continue to grow even if birth rates fall below replacement for quite a while. And this happens at exactly the same time that the many crises of extinction and extraction and hyper ongoing hyper neoliberalism and capital this happens at the same time that the earth is under under tightening crisis, call it climate crisis. It's much more than that. So um, it it really is a time of of um, a time of deep urgency that we don't we collectively yeah. truly. Uh, truly are searching for ways to work, how to build communities, uh, uh, housing, transportation, um, ca- corridors of care, your term, which I really yes. like, uh, for kids um, and how how adults can be responsible to and for kids and enjoy kids without necessarily having to make your own, um, various ways of sharing responsibilities for children. That is really hard. Uh, boy, the changes in that are not simple. Uh, so I'm I'm about making kin and taking that on and making, you know, making baby. I just think most babies have a right to way more than two parents. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful way of, of of putting it. But
0: is there here? So I know I'm I'm posing a very big question, but it's a big issue we're dealing with. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s, I was probably living in one of the most liberal societies in the world in one of the most liberal eras of history. And my parents were imagining that they were kind of the last generation to live in nucleus families, that new ways of living together would be invented. And that this was just a you know a forced neurosis of bourgeois society. You, you would say at the time and that they were just bound together by economic regards and because they had to function together and that we would liberate ourselves from... that. But then I think what happened, and that was very difficult for many on the left, is that those who were excluded from that life, that those who didn't have access to that life, those who weren't allowed to marry, those who weren't allowed to have babies, that their liberation was kind of, we want what we've been excluded from. And with good reason. Yes, with good reason. And this newspaper, (laughs) we supported, I mean, we supported every one of those movements. And we'll continue doing it. And I'm not judging, but what I'm saying is that this way, which is we demand rights that we don't have, there's also kind of a conservative effect of that. Is that you extend society as it is, that you reproduce the marriage institution,
1: you reproduce the nuclear family. Do you see what I'm pointing at? Oh, I do absolutely. Yes, I do. Well, in two things. First of all, my generation, but uh, and and especially. Um, Black and brown people of my generation, but white people too. Um, The question of racism in antinatalism is really deep. The question of eugenics and racism around population issues is so deep and so profound and so big that I and we have to be really careful, really careful. There's the question of women's reproductive freedom. There's also the question of flat out racism vis-a-vis the babies of black and brown people and of et cetera. The question of racism and eugenics has not gone away. If anything, in many ways, it's deeper. Okay, so uh, I don't think people of my, you know, the feminists and the left and so forth of my generation were wrong about our critique of, of patriarchal family forms and our imagination of other forms of social life. But I think we were incredibly, were and are incredibly naive about what it would really take to pull that off, including The fundamental changes in the structure of law, uh, the question of who banks give loans to, uh, what kinds of design practices are going to be approved by a city council for an apartment complex. These are questions of architecture, law, economics, credit, banking. And in situations where the law is changed really narrowly, marriage, it's still pretty important if people are not gonna be lonely and if they're gonna be economically uh, more or less well off, marriage remains pretty much the fundamental route to doing that. Okay. As long as that's true, it's an empty fantasy. And marriage law has not been weakened, it's been slightly broadened to include a few categories of, a, of you know, like gay marriage is legal in, in a lot of places. Under the circumstances, that's a good thing. But it's got to go along with the ongoing understanding that compulsory marriage remains totally subsidized around the world, uh, that it remains essentially uh, uh, coercive, and that uh, the ongoing struggle to change the laws is not just to, you know, make gay marriage legal, for example, or birth control legal, or abortion to keep it legal, fights which in many ways uh, you win. There's a real, um, these struggles are ongoing, and in many ways we are losing some of these really important struggles, but we're not done. We haven't lost them. You know, the struggle goes on. So I think that we, it's not like my generation or the left, whatever, didn't know that this that this is a structural matter, profoundly structural and intimate, but that our fantasies got ahead of the ongoing work. If you're going to fight for gay marriage, you've got to fight with it, fight for it simultaneously uh, with a uh, guaranteed annual income for everybody. Mm -hmm. moving marriage out of the state and and leaving it uh, as a matter for the churches or the community centers. So fine, get married. If it's a religious thing, great, do it. But the state is not going to subsidize marriage. The state is going to subsidize a truly good income for everybody and an infrastructure that allows people real choice about how to live, collectively with provision for privacy, so on, so on, and that there will be funds developed for architectural plans and land set aside, we've got to think an ongoing real politics, not just the fantasy of ending patriarchy.
0: And I, th- I think the, the, the phrase staying with the trouble is very precise about what this is all about, you know, having been in this struggle for decades and seen some wins and some losses. And uh, you know I think it's a great uh, metaphor, a way of pointing at that. I have one question and one request left because we don't have a lot of time, but I know it's important for you because I said before that for my generation, we saw your work coming out at the same time as post-structuralist work came out. So you were in our academic context at the time connected to, of course, Bruno Latour that we spoke to a couple of weeks ago here about Gaia, but also Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. And I reread, when I reread your writing this last week, I was thinking you came up with the term cynical relativism very, very early, which is a perfect way of describing what a lot of people on the right are doing today. But I also know it's important for you to say you're not out of that movement that I described. Your genealogy as a thinker and practitioner is different.
1: Right, My genealogy really is the Boston Women's Health Collective and the Marxist Feminist Feminist Collectives in Baltimore and and Raina Rapp and Adele Clark and Lee Starr and Patricia Hill Collins and and, um, feminist science studies and, and feminist standpoint theory really is my fundamental intellectual genealogy. And I read Laboratory Life early on and loved it. And Bruno became a profound friend colleague I read Foucault and loved it, never met him. I loved his work. The notion that Foucault could be enlisted for the kind of cynical right wing relativism that we see now, that anything is true, that to each her own truth, bullshit. It's so far from anything Foucault ever wrote. It's complete nonsense. I never read Derrida early. I came to him late. I've never been a fan, though. Several of my friends have led me to appreciate his work in a range of ways. Similarly, Deleuze. I'm a, I'm a reader and an appreciator, but my roots really are in feminist science studies, feminist writing. And I now regard Bruno as, as, a, as a feminist. It took him a while to get there, but he did get there <laughs> with a little help from his friends like Nancy Ann and Isabel and me and Anna. And, you know, so I, I work with friend colleagues um, and I am not a relativist. I am a relationalist. Uh, and relationalities are situated and material and meaningful and non-optional. They are not relativism in the sense that uh, you know why believe science is just another opinion nonsense. Uh, it's built. It's it holds. It you know it has a firmness to it that truly is non-optional. It's worth living and dying for. But it, science is not science with a capital S. And Bruno's been really good at at continuing to insist on that. But so too have feminist science studies folks from the beginning with our notions of standpoint theory and situated knowledge. So one last
0: thing, not a question, but a request because your work is so much about telling stories and we talk like it's intellectual analysis. It It is. It's part of it. It's theory. It's science theory, but it's also about telling stories. And there's and the staying with the trouble ends with what you call Camille's stories. And there's one story that I really appreciate. there are several actually, but this one, Nausica of the Wind Valley. I really appreciate the that.
1: I would like to end with you telling us that story of Nausicaa of the Wind <sighs> Valley. Well, I'm you know, I'm obviously profoundly informed by the storytelling of Octavia Butler, Joanna Russ, Ursula Le Guin, where storytelling is really fundamental to the possibility of inhabiting the world robustly with an imagination that can make a difference. So Nausicaa, the Valley of the Winds is, of course, uh, Miyazaki's work out of the Ghibli studio in Japan. And it's related to anime. It's related to um, uh, manga comics. And Nausicaa is this amazing kind of hero girl figure who commits herself with her animal familiar and her kind of uh, little airplane to somehow confronting the warring communities that threaten to destroy each other and recognizing that the toxic forest is the result of of war and and toxic pollution and that the forest, the toxic forest that threatens to kill the community is not the enemy but that the toxic forest is really detoxifying and one must make friends with the trees and the microbes and the insects, the omu, these giant, uh, extraordinarily gorgeous insects that Nausicaa learns to communicate with and saves one of their larvae from from enemies. And then the Omo become her ally uh, in the detoxification of the forest and in the making peace in the face of permanent war. Nausicaa is an amazing figure who is making peace in the face of ongoing permanent war and doing it in the forest with the chemicals, the microbes, the animals, the trees. Uh, and the, uh, the graphics of uh, Miyazaki's, uh, Studio gibil's Gil- Gil- graphics are just amazing. And it's again a place where the visuality and the orality and the narrativity come together in a forceful way to lead those who inhabit these fictions to understand that, that our job is making peace and that this is an ongoing necessity well, thank you. I think it's a very good place to
0: end. You you've said several times when I heard you speak about showing up, how important it is to show up for the demonstration, show up for the workshop. I promise you we're all about showing up here and thank you so much for your inspiration through the years and tonight for us here and tomorrow
1: for you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. <laughs> and thank you for your questions. They were great.
0: Det var så min samtale med Donna Harvey. Jeg skylder måske at, sige, at at blive i besværet er udkommet på forlaget Mindspace i 2021. Forlaget Mindspace har også udgivet Cyborg Manifestet, som den hedder på dansk, og Situeret viden og flere andre af Donna Haraways bøger. Hvis man gerne vil erhverve så dem, så anbefaler man at gå ind på forlaget Mindspace hjemmeside og købe dem. derinde fra, det så får det her lille idealistiske foretagende hele provenuet fra jeres indsats. I næste uge, der skal jeg tale med en anden kvinde, som vi ser op til her på Dagbladet Information. Det er nemlig økonomen Kate Rayworth, som har lavet den berømte donut-model. Og donut, det lyder måske som noget, der foregår i et bageri, men det er det ikke. Det er fordi, at Kate Rayworth mener, man skal kunne se verden gennem billeder, hvis man skal kunne lave vores økonomi om. Og den handler kort og godt om, at vi bør indrette økonomien sådan, så både tager hensyn til naturens grænser og til menneskenes grænser. Man kan sige, at der, hvor vi med Donna Haraway var staying with the trouble, der var vi omkring og i vores hverdag, der vil Kate Raworth have sit andet sted hen. Hun vil have til at se på hele den økonomiske orden og overveje, hvad for nogle grænser vi kan sætte for den, så vi får nogle nye mulighedsrum, og så vi kan lave hele verden om. Jeg håber, I lytter med igen i næste uge. Tak for nu. Mit navn er Rune Løber.